The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13, and it can be found on page 983 of the Bibles. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is the word of the Lord. We just sung these words. The risen king who reigns above died to be my saviour. There could be no greater love. And so, our Father, we pray that as we look on this passage, where Jesus' kingship is confessed, that you would cause us to believe and that you would cause us to see that there is no greater love. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last weekend I managed to get five minutes from all the chaos at home to sit down and read the paper. And I came across this article by Tim Farron, uh, MP. Now, it's always dangerous quoting an MP, but what he says I think uh, we would all have to agree with. He says this, Christianity began with its leader executed in shame alongside common criminals in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, leaving a handful of demoralised followers who were then persecuted mercilessly. I can see no earthly reason for the church having lasted more than a weekend, never mind two millennia. And it's hard to argue with, isn't it? Whatever we think about the church, whether we're sympathetic or uh, not, it's a remarkable fact that the church exists two millennia on. And it's remarkable when you consider that the church didn't begin with huge bank accounts or influential leaders or the might of a sword. It started, as Tim Farron writes, with a handful of demoralised followers. And yet, this group has gone on to grow and transform the lives of millions for two millennia and continues, despite predictions, continues to grow globally. And this morning, this morning's passage shows us why that is the case especially when everything goes against it. Because our passage this morning gets right to the start of the church, day zero for the church, if you like. 
And we're going to see how the church uh, starts and how it's meant to grow. Now, why does that matter to you and me 2,000 years on and 2,000 miles away? Well, because I think as we see how this early church movement started, the engine that drove that movement, we will see the engine that's going to continue to drive us today in the 21st century. Now, we're back in a series in Matthew's Gospel, and you may remember we've been looking through Matthew in the spring terms over the last few years, and we return to um, Matthew this year, that is after an unplanned stop in Genesis 37, Uh, uh, which I'm not going to mention again. Uh, The thing is, when reading the Gospels, is that we, it's important that we read the Gospels on their own terms. There can, I think, be the danger of making uh, what I call a super gospel. What I mean by that is that we read the Gospels and we think that sounds familiar to Mark, that sounds familiar to Luke, and we kind of put it all together and we turn not actually what each of the authors are saying, we just make up a kind of super gospel. But the thing is, God hasn't given us one gospel, he's given us four gospels. And so it's important we read each of those four gospels uh, on their own terms. So it's important to ask not just what's happening here, but how are we being told about what's happening? Now, when you ask that question of this passage, I think we find that Matthew is doing something quite remarkable here. Um, this incident pops up in three of the Gospels, but only Matthew mentions the church. And all the bits between 17 and 19 about Peter and who holds the keys and the church, uh, that's only found in Matthew. And so you can see immediately, can't you, that Matthew thinks that the church is important. Now, when you zoom out on this whole section, uh, we looked at it uh, 2019, so I'll, I'll forgive you for it being a bit fuzzy, but um, you see that the wider context um, supports this, um, this theme. Um, have a look over the page, uh, 14 verse 33. I don't mean 33, I mean 13. Um, sorry. Uh, look at what Jesus does. When Jesus heard all that happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And look over the page 1521. Jesus again. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew. And look at the end of 16 verse 4. Jesus left them and went away. So running through this whole section is this idea of Jesus departing. Earlier on in the gospel, Jesus has put the message of the kingdom out. And now there's been opposition. He's withdrawing uh, his uh, ministry. And so in 1621 today, we're going to see that Jesus makes the ultimate withdrawal as he goes to his death. And so this section really is about that next step. What happens after Jesus departs? How's the kingdom going to go out? How's it going to go out to the ends of the world? And here we see the answer. It is the church. And Matthew wants us to see three absolutely vital things about the church. First of all, how you get in. Secondly, how it grows. And thirdly, what it's meant to do. Uh, First of all then, we see here uh, Peter's confession of Jesus. Jesus takes his disciples for a countryside walk in verse 13. And uh, the countryside is nice and quiet, so he asks them this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples outline some of the hearsay of the day. They say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. And then Jesus asks the million dollar question in verse 15. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now what's interesting about Matthew's account here is that the disciples seem to have already grasped who Jesus is. Uh, Just look back over the page to 14 verse 33. Sorry for all the page turning. I think this is about it. 
Notice what they say at the end of verse 33. Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus has just calmed the storm and then they make this confession. So why, back in chapter 15, is Jesus asking this question? Why do we need it again? Well, it's always the case that when Jesus asks questions like this, it's not for his sake, it is for our sake. See, Jesus wants his disciples to articulate what they think. It's like Jesus wants to turn all those vague feelings of Jesus being important into an actual answer to a question. Let me give you an example of this. Um, Claire and I, when we were dating or courting, whatever you'd like to call it, depending on your age, um, for a long time we discussed marriage. And we daydreamed about living uh, life together and uh, the desire to marry. But the thing is, that's not how you get engaged, is it? You don't just kind of vaguely drift into it. An engagement starts with a question. Will you marry me? And an answer, I will. And it's like that here. All the kind of vague notions about Jesus are good, but Jesus wants them to crystallize with this one question. What about you? Who do you say I am? And actually it's a question that jumps out to us as readers and hearers. What about you? Who do you say I am? See, Jesus asks all of us, not just what do people say about me, Not just what does your family think of me, not what you may have thought in the past, but what about you today? Who do you say I am? It's very easy, isn't it, in church to kind of take refuge in vague opinions, even to think that Jesus is real, even to think that he's got a lot to offer you, but to never answer that question, who do I think he is? Who do I say he is? Well, Peter replies wonderfully in verse 16 you are the Christ son of the living God see it's clear isn't it Peter sees something different to all the hearsay of the day he calls Jesus the Christ and uh, lots of us know this already but it's worth saying uh, every time that Jesus Christ is not Christ is not Jesus's surname Uh, it's a job title Uh, it comes from the Old Testament Uh, here's an example of it in Psalm 2 Uh, Look at what it says. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. Uh, The words there is is Christ. So Peter is picking up on this psalm. He does that with the, the word son of God as well. And he's saying, look, you are the ruler of rulers. You are the Lord's anointed. This Galilean carpenter is not just like any other prophet. He's not just sent from God. He's not just a teacher, he's not just an inspiring model, he is God's king and therefore Peter's master. Now what's this got to do with the church? Well I think Matthew has put this right here to show us this is the way in. See this is the entrance to the church, confessing Jesus as God's king. Now we don't need to do that in particular words, we don't need a confession box to do that, but every Christian by definition needs to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul says this, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Who do you say that I am? Now one of the best things about being in the Church of England is not the chance to wear fancy robes. It is uh, what I think, uh, what people call the charitable assumption. Uh, The Church of England I think is quite generous with people 
in that it doesn't check out everyone who comes through the church, uh, their beliefs and whether they've made a confession or not. And I think that's a good thing because as a church we want to say, come and look and examine and make up your own mind, no matter where you're coming from. But there is the danger with that, that we can have a false sense of security. That as long as we have some sort of vague notion that Jesus is important, it's okay. But the true entrance to the church is not through our three-meter pine doors. It is through confessing Jesus as the Christ for ourselves. And so all of us need to answer that question for ourselves. What about you? Who do you say I am? But secondly here, we see um, not just the way into the church, not just the entrance, but we see the way on for the church, how it's to grow. Because after this confession, uh, Jesus commissions Peter. Have a look at verse 18 uh, with me. Uh, Jesus says this, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, it might not seem um, immediately obvious, but Jesus is giving Peter, uh, or giving Simon rather, a nickname here. And we think to ourselves, well, Peter isn't a very good nickname. It doesn't sound very ordinary. But actually, in the first century, uh, the name Peter was not common at all. And actually, the word uh, sounds like the Greek for rock, Petra. And so Jesus is effectively uh, renaming Simon, Simon the Rock. Pretty cool, isn't it? Love to be called that, Rob the Rock, that sort of thing. (laughs) But you can see why it's appropriate, can't you? Because Jesus says that on this rock... I will build my church. Now, over time, um, this passage, I think, has been the hotbed for all sorts of debates, uh, about, uh, especially between Roman Catholics and Protestants, uh, because uh, out of this passage has emerged this idea in the Roman Catholic Church of popes and uh, the idea that Peter's the first pope and uh, all the other popes are descended from him. And all those popes have this sort of rock-like role. And over the centuries, other ideas have been added on to that, like papal infallibility. And in response to that, Protestants have said, well, that's not what the passage teaches. And they say, some people argue that it's not Peter who's the rock, it's actually his confession. And so Jesus is saying, on your faith, I will build this church. Or some people argue that it's not Peter who's the rock, it's actually Jesus. And Jesus is kind of changing it. Peter, you're a rock, but actually I'm the bigger rock. Now, why I'm sympathetic to um, those, uh, the desire not to use this passage in the wrong way, I don't think that arguing Peter is not the rock is actually the way to go. See, if Matthew wants us to see something else as the rock, well, he's written it in a very roundabout way because Jesus makes a purposeful pun on his name. Peter, uh, Simon, Peter, you're the rock, I'm this rock, I'm going to build my church. But on the other hand, just because we say Peter is the rock doesn't mean we have to sign up for popes or infallibility. And in fact, uh, as you read the New Testament, you see that that just really isn't the case. Uh, Peter's corrected by the Apostle Paul for his teaching. He's not infallible. And actually in Acts 8, Peter's sent out by the other apostles. He's not all-powerful. And so we can say, I think, that Peter is the rock, but we don't have to kind of sign up for the papacy. But more importantly, and if that didn't mean anything to you, just come back in now. Um, More importantly, the question is, what, what does it mean that Peter's the rock? Well, look at verse 19. Jesus says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. See, to have the keys to something is to be a steward. I've got here 
uh, the key to St. Mary's. Now, I don't own St. Mary's, uh, it's not my church, but I'm a steward of it, I've got a key. And so on Friday, we get all the youth club um, outside waiting in the cold, and I go in, I unlock the door, and let them in. And then when we're finished, uh, we open the door and let them all out. I'm stewarding the building. And Jesus says to Peter, you're stewarding not just a building, but the kingdom of heaven. You have the keys, if you like, to the kingdom. Now, the way the grammar works here is, is fairly complicated, but it's, it's very specifically chosen because um, what P- Jesus means by that is not that Peter's got some special power by which he can choose people, who's going to come in, who's going to come out. So you know that idea of Peter being at the pearly gates? Um, that comes from this passage, but it's complete nonsense. It's not that Peter decides. Uh, rather, and the footnote, you'll see hints at this, Peter will find that his work on earth will be the case in heaven. See, one day, Peter will find that all his work on earth will be reflected in heaven. It's got an eternal significance, if you like. Now, that's quite complicated. Let me give you an example to help you. Um, You may have seen the film The Karate Kid. Stay with me on this one. I think it's helpful. (laughs) The film Karate Kid, um, it's absolutely brilliant, and I've got to watch it again after thinking about it. But um, in the film, you know the idea that the kid comes to a teacher to learn karate, And uh, instead of being taught karate, he's taught very mundane things. So, like painting the fence, up and down, up and down, day in, day out, up and down. Uh, Cleaning the car, remember that? Wax on, wax off, that sort of motion, constantly. And you watch the film and you think, what is going on? It's very boring, Uh, it's just doing these very routine things, day in, day out. Uh, And then I think he starts an argument with his teacher, and uh, the teacher um, starts a karate fight with him, as you do, And uh, all those actions suddenly come into play. So the swipe, the up-down motion, and all that sort of thing. And it's a great moment in the film because you realise all those very ordinary mundane things have taken on this great significance as he becomes a karate master and beats up the world and that sort of thing. Do do you see the point, though? Very ordinary starts, very routine actions in the length... once uh, uh, take on a greater significance later in time and I think that's similar here Peter's, uh, Jesus is saying to Peter look you're going to go out and you're going to proclaim the Christ and that is going to seem very ordinary work and actually lots of people are going to accept it but lots of people are going to reject it and you're going to suffer because of that message but what you're doing is not ordinary it's not mundane actually what you bind will be bound in heaven and what you loose will be loosed in heaven But here's the thing, it's not just Peter. Um, Have a look over the page at 18, verse 18. Notice these words, I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking again, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Now it's the same words, but Jesus is speaking, you'll see this in verse 1, to his disciples. So this is a commission, not just to Peter, But all of his disciples, and in fact, we won't go there now, but at the end of the gospel, we're going to see Jesus commission his whole church to go out to the ends of the earth. And so, yes, Peter is the rock. He's got a special purpose in the church. But actually, it's not just Peter doing the binding and the loosening. It is all of Jesus' disciples. And it's remarkable, isn't it, when you think that this is the way Jesus is building his church. I mean, if you think about it, Jesus could have built his church in a thousand different ways. He could have zapped everyone and made them instant Christians. He could visit people in a vision and call them to himself. But that's not how Jesus builds his church. 
He builds it through the words of ordinary people. This first century fisherman is called the rock on which he's going to build his church. This disillusioned group that's no bigger than a football team is going to be binding and loosening people for the kingdom of heaven. And as they do, you see that reflected in history, don't you? This little group here becomes bigger than the Roman Empire and is still the biggest movement in our world two millennia later. And their commission is our commission. Jesus builds his church through everyday people like you and me. Whenever we speak the gospel, God is doing that work of binding and loosening. And you may think to yourself, well, this conversation has little effect. Perhaps you've been speaking with friends for years. You've been doing the coffee mornings, chatting about your faith. Perhaps you're chatting in the office. And you think, what does this matter? It's just words. But Jesus says, one day you will find that reflected in heaven. That conversation at the water cooler isn't just some conversation. It's potentially opening the door to the kingdom. That youth talk you pour all your energies and sweat over all week, those lunch club talks and you you do them and you think, is anyone listening to me, aren't just kind of some information. They're binding and loosening people for the kingdom of heaven. That's how we grow the church. But thirdly, I want us to finish uh, by seeing the twist at the end of this passage. Now, I don't know if you spotted this when it was read out. Verse 20 um, really jumps out at you, doesn't it? Uh, Because he says there, Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ. And you think to yourself, that seems very remarkable, doesn't it? Because Peter's just confessed Jesus as the Christ. He's just commissioned Peter to go out and proclaim the Christ. And now he's saying, don't do it. And the word there is to warn someone in no uncertain terms. You must not teach, I am the Christ. Tell anyone, I'm the Christ. But it makes sense when you look at what happens next. Look over the page, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. That shall never happen to you. See, in the first century, um, it wasn't, uh, Jesus wasn't the only person to claim to be the Messiah. There were all sorts of expectations about that. But the Messiah that Jesus describes here is absolutely polar opposite to those other claims. Because the messiahs that the Jewish people were looking for were the ones that would come in and liberate them from their Roman oppressors. See, it's like Peter has got in mind, I don't know if this works for you, a kind of James Bond Christ, a 007 Christ, who will go into Jerusalem and kill all the baddies and free the city for his people. But rather than Jesus being a 007 Christ, Jesus is a suffering Christ. He says he is a Christ who will suffer many things and be killed. And Peter can have none of it. It's like Peter saying, you cannot be the Messiah and be killed. The two don't work. They're like oil and water. They do not mix. And Jesus replies, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. It's hard to imagine hearing stronger words from Jesus, isn't it? Peter, who's meant to be the rock on which Jesus builds his church, has become a rock to trip Jesus up. And Matthew's making the point very clearly that Peter just hasn't got it. 
He can see that Jesus is God's king, but he can't see that he must suffer. Peter hasn't grasped the cross. And until he has, he must not tell anyone that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus cares about this message so much that he would rather us keep our lips shut than talk about him if we've not understood that he must suffer. Um, earlier this week, I was at um, what we call an installation for a new vicar. It's basically when they start their job. And uh, it's a, it was a great service. Uh, lots of kind of quirkiness about it. The vicar's paraded around the church and um, is presented with the keys. It has to ring the bell. And all sorts of gifts are brought out, like Bibles and water and all sorts of things. Um, it's a bit quirky, but it was a great evening. Not because of all that stuff, but because of what the vicar said, the new vicar. Uh, he said he's going to be starting a series on Galatians. And the reason he was is because he wanted this verse to be at the heart of the church. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's absolutely right, isn't it? That is the central message of the church. And when you think about it, it would have been so easy for Jesus to send Peter out in his excitement. Having just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, having just been commissioned, you could have sent Peter out and he would have you know, told everyone. But the thing is, Peter would not have proclaimed the true Christ. It wouldn't be a Christ who goes to the cross, who dies, who is raised. So it's a reminder, isn't it, that we do not proclaim a Christ who seems very powerful to our world. We have to proclaim a Christ who suffers. Because we know that through that suffering there is true power and true life to be found. It is through Jesus' suffering, not his power, that we're healed. It is through Jesus' death that we're made alive. It is through Jesus' resurrection that people like you and me may live forever. And it's an absolute tragedy when the church loses confidence in that message. In an effort to kind of seem more appropriate, to seem more relevant, we take off the rough edges and we kind of present Jesus as this powerful figure. But in the way that the world sees power. And we attract people to church by putting all the good-looking people on our websites and putting the successful people up front. I'm glad to say there's an exception here this morning. But that is not the message of our church, is it? See, our hope comes in a Christ who suffers, who dies and is raised to life. He subverts the way our world thinks of him. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm so thankful to be part of the church family. We don't get everything right here at St. Mary's. But I'm thankful that we do want to put the cross at the centre. And I wonder, will we continue to fight for that in the decades to come? And will that be the heart of what we teach as we teach our small groups, as we teach our young people's groups, as we teach um, the lunch club and those sort of groups? And is this the message, the heart of what we speak about with our colleagues and our friends? I I remember when I was back in um, secular work, I would talk about church by talking about all the kind of cool things we do and all the kind of successful people who go and you sort of say well if they go then you must go because they're pretty successful and um, you're like to be like them but actually that really is the wrong way around isn't it it is through weakness it is through suffering it is through the death of the Christ that people are brought into the kingdom as we close I want to finish with this um you may you're probably aware that Peter writes another couple of letters in the New Testament And look at what he writes uh, in this letter, his first letter. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Always love to imagine what Peter must be thinking as he wrote those words. Because you think to yourself, what a change. I wonder if he remembered that time that he rebuked Jesus. Because Peter goes from denying that the Christ must suffer to delighting in it and telling the churches under his care to go on proclaiming it. And I wonder, is that something we ourselves as a church have grasped this morning? Well, Matthew's been showing us day zero of the church, and here we've seen the entrance to the church. Who do you say I am? What do you think? The building of the church, whatever you bind and loose, will be reflected in heaven. And we see the message of the church. He must suffer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for that great news that Jesus is the Christ. And we pray, Father, for all of us that we come to a greater realisation of that reality. And so, Father, we pray for us as a church family, you would give us all confidence in that message as we take it out uh, to the world around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.